We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. In between Merkin folks, we're talking about business as well. Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. I'll give you some shoulders. There you go. And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. It's gotta be crisp. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. Oh, I wish it was. This episode focuses on security with Mehdi. You can call me with my last name as well, now that you know how to pronounce it. Zerwali, co-founder and director of Sigma Prime. To start off, uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to Hashing It Out. Mehdi, we, we met uh, DevCon... I don't know. We met a while ago and I, a just an yeah. opportune uh, introduction from Evan Van Ness, actually, at a bar. It's like, oh, hey, here's wow. my buddies. Oh, yeah, security. Right. Y'all should that's talk. Right. Yes. It was uh, in Berlin, I believe, 2017. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. And then we hung out and chatted and went to a different bar and drank copiously. Uh, so why don't you do a favor and give our audience an introduction to who you are and what you do and what you're into? Sure, can do. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, always a pleasure chatting with you, Corey. Uh, nice to meet the new faces um, on the podcast. My name is Mehdi. I'm a co-founder and director of Sigma Prime. We are an information security consultancy uh, focused on blockchain technology. This means that we provide security assessment services to a whole bunch of different blockchain projects. As you can imagine, a lot of smart contract security assessments. But we're also very comfortable diving deeper into the stack uh, and have been helping a bunch of blockchain foundations um, secure their blockchain nodes or blockchain clients. Um, so working with the Ethereum Foundation, for example, on a bunch of fuzzing uh, exercises, allowing us to um, surface potential critical vulnerabilities on all the Ethereum clients. Um, so yeah, that's keeping us really busy, as you can imagine, these days. Uh, and that's sort of half of what we do. That's the half that I look after. And the other half of the team is dedicated to the development and maintenance of Lighthouse. Lighthouse is the Rust implementation of the Ethereum consensus protocol. Uh, it is now responsible for about 35 40% of the users on the Ethereum network, which is great and scary at the same time uh but yeah kudos to the team who's been doing an amazing job uh for the past four years um yeah allowing us to uh yeah have a proof of stake ethereum chain i, I still can't believe it sometimes yeah and how smoothly it went for that matter yeah that's uh me sigma prime in a nutshell uh prior to starting sigma prime i was a penetration tester finding bugs in people's uh, mobile apps um networks web apps, et cetera. Um, yeah, and we've been around for about six and a half years. Thanks for that. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's prudent to start off with the general concept of security. So like, what does it mean when you say security in the blockchain space? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, when you we've asked the question, I automatically started thinking about some of my very, very first information security uh, courses that I've actually uh, went through in, uh, in Sweden. And uh, there's this concept of the CIA triad, right? I'm sure that's probably familiar to you, Corey. 
Um, so the CIHI defines three um, properties that effectively made up the security of a system. You have C, that stands for confidentiality. I, that stands for integrity. And A stands for availability, right? Uh, these are pretty self-explanatory. Confidentiality, you want a certain piece of information to remain sort of private and confidential to a selected set of participants. Integrity, you want the assurance that the data hasn't been tampered with, hasn't been changed. And availability, you want, obviously, to be able to access the data whenever you want, whenever the system is actually allowing you to. Um, so you can probably define security using these three metrics. And when it comes to blockchains, um, we can probably dive into, into these uh, a bit more specifically, but you know, confidentiality is obviously a, a challenge in most uh, open networks and open blockchains. Uh, things like zero-knowledge proofs, obviously, will help tackle that. But uh, integrity is kind of the whole reason why we're doing this thing, right? Having the ability to pr uh, trust that the whatever information, whatever transaction will never be tampered with uh, under normal set of, uh, of, of rules. Uh, and then availability is, is a very interesting one in the context of blockchains, uh, which has to tie with the concept of liveness, right? For these networks, making sure that you actually have an operating uh, platform that will be resilient to a lot of denial of service attacks, for example, or certain parts of the world going offline of the internet for certain reasons, um, network petitions, how do you recover from those, etc. Uh, so it probably helps approaching the problem, in my view, uh, by trying to map whatever uh, blockchains you're trying to assess with these three criteria, confidentiality, integrity, availability. There's a lot of different models, obviously, but this is a pretty simple one, I'd say. And those three metrics, like how do those three metrics pertain to like blockchain? Like what does security mean specifically in the blockchain space? Yeah. Um, so it means a whole lot of things, right? So uh, give me three things. Different... Yes. Yeah, there's three layers. There's sorry, two fundamental layers, perhaps in the blockchain uh, world, I'd say, right? You've got the consensus layer and the execution layer. So execution essentially deals with transactions, user transactions. This is where we move funds around. This is where we create smart contracts, et cetera. And then you've got the consensus side of things. This is where your validators or your miners come to consensus and obviously agree on the canonical tip of the chain, which is you know updated every 12 seconds uh, for Ethereum, that is. So you can essentially mess with the security of a blockchain uh, by messing with either of those layers. If you find a problem with the execution of a transaction, your network's probably going to have a bad time. Uh, if you manage to break the consensus of that network, well, um, the only alternative you have left is probably a hard fork, right? So you probably don't want that because that might be contentious. Um, so the way we approach uh, security assessments of blockchain software uh, is, is by trying to find really that separation between the two layers, right? Like, Conceptually, you have your execution, this is where your applications live, and then you have your core, layer one, uh, which is where the consensus lives. Um, we obviously work on both layers, uh, doing, as I said, a lot of smart contract security reviews, but also helping on the lower layers, blockchain um, networks, ship secure software. So uh, what might be interested in, interesting is to perhaps dive a little bit into the consensus side of things. While the execution is, I guess, fairly well covered these days, you know, a lot of smart contract auditing shops, 
lot of smart contract uh, auditing freelancers that are these days, you know, hammering platforms like Code Arena, uh, Immunify and whatnot. Uh, and I feel like we, we, we get a lot of information on what's going on on that side of the, the spectrum. But the consensus side is is somewhat obscure to a lot of us. So if that's okay with you guys, I'll probably just dive into the consensus. And if we have time, we can tackle the uh, application layer. How does that sound? Sounds great. Yeah, real quick. I would like to add on to that as um, this is something that I tried to harp on when I focused on security uh, was when you hear the word security, uh, as it pertains to blockchains or web three or whatever, everyone identifies that immediately with smart contract security. And up until I'd say recently with efforts like yours and many others, uh, it's become more aware in the broader ecosystem that there's a lot more going on under the hood outside of smart contracts. Like there's a lot that needs to happen correctly in order for you to start thinking about the concept of smart contract security. Uh, can you talk about like, maybe first before you dig into some of the subtleties of execution layer or consensus layer security, like why that is like, why is it that um, people focus on smart contracts when they think about security and why now are we starting to think about other types of security and why they're important? Interesting. Uh, so I think the the general community is interested in, in building on the application layer, right? So in the context of, EVM chains, this is you know, developing your smart contracts in Solidity or Viper, comp compiling them into EVM bytecode and deploying that. So naturally, you're going to have a lot more people involved with the application layer than the base layer, right? It's probably, I don't know, 150 people, 200 people around the world working on the base layer uh, with the Ethereum Foundation or with teams like ourselves. But um, you'll have, I don't know, probably 100 or 1,000 times more people actually working on the application layer. Uh, which makes sense. There's probably going to be a lot more things to secure on the application layer as we ossify the base layer of Ethereum. Hopefully, we will, shouldn't be seeing too many changes on that base layer in five, 10 years' time. A lot of work currently being done to ossify that layer. We're not there yet, but hopefully that's the trajectory that we're taking. Um, so I think it's natural that people have been focusing a lot more on Solidity EVM type stuff. Uh, than they have been on the, the bare sort of um, lower levels. Um, you'll find that the actual attack surface is somewhat perhaps uh, limited on, on, on those blockchain networks. First of all, there aren't that many, right? There's like a limited set of them. It's probably, I don't know, the ones worth looking into, maybe 30 of them, 20, not sure. Uh, whereas obviously the number of smart contracts deployed on Ethereum alone is that are actually worth investigating and potentially uh, reporting bugs on, uh, you know, the order of the, probably the thousands or the tens of thousands. Um, and it's also probably a bit harder. <laughs> like the security of the consensus layer is, has to uh, tie in with a lot of computer science concepts uh, some of them quite evolved, uh, whereas the EVM layer, well, I guess, you know, uh, historically we've seen a lot of people coming in as smart contract security auditors who don't necessarily have comp sci backgrounds, right? They're just able to conceptualize the EVM, abstract the complexity away and just tackle it, you know, as they would tackle any other sort of assessment, uh, which is cool, which has allowed us to you know, beef up the, the actual number of, of people able to provide these uh, security uh, services on, on smart contracts. Whereas if you want to do the same thing, like secure, help secure Geth or help secure Lighthouse or Prism, that will 
certainly take a lot of uh, expertise in in both the, the the actual programming language used, but also the uh, the, the fundamentals of you know programming and and sound programming, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Okay. So am I good to dive into the consensus side of things? Dive in, um, dive away. All right, let's let's do it. So we've done this for a bunch of networks, right? We've done this for the Ethereum network, uh, Polkadot. Uh, I'm scanning through the ones that aren't covered with NDAs. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, a, bu a bunch of others, right? Uh, and you have these, these networks that operate on you know, a lot of the most of them mainnet these days. Some of them may have different implementations of the same specification in different languages. Uh, we'll come back to this after. It's quite can be quite quite important and quite tricky to get right. Um, and essentially, you can you can think of them as you know single pieces of software that connect to other you know similar software uh, in a peer to peer fashion. They propagate messages. They they exchange a whole bunch of messages, and they all have to do in the con this is Ethereum specific in this example, they all have to do something every five minutes or every six minutes. Every validator around the world has to do something, right? Uh, it can be just you know vouching for what they think is the tip of the chain, or it can be proposing a block themselves if it's their turn. Um, so yeah, just helps sort of set, set the scene. This is what we're dealing with on the consensus layer for Ethereum at least. Um, so obviously you, you want to think of, uh, Think about this as, a, as an attacker, right? With like a, a, a sort of adversary mindset. Um, what if I could connect to these networks and shut them down? That'd be pretty good, right? If I'm uh, attempting to destroy Ethereum or I don't know, like I'm opening a short position on ETH and then I can destroy the Ethereum network for a certain period of time, I might actually make a, a decent quick buck. Um, so this is what we look at in terms, and that ties in to the availability side of things, right? Um, if I'm able to bring the network down, I can probably profit from this. Um, so the way we approach this particular um, statement or, or, or question is by, first of all, looking at the peer-to-peer -peer networking stack. Um, so you may have heard of things like libp2p, devp2p, etc. These are frameworks, modular frameworks that can be used by blockchain networks to power their P2P networking interfaces. Um, so what, if, 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 if I'm able to send a single packet to a blockchain node and that packet will bring it down, well, I can probably send that same packet to all the blockchain nodes on that network and bring the whole network down, or at least be able to bring... Um, a certain amount of network of, of network participants down, which may actually impact the final finalization of the chain, for example. So uh, networking is always a hot area for us to look at. You know, we want to be able to um, demonstrate to our clients that through connecting to a single peer and sending a single TCP packet, we're actually able to take the node down. And this uh, has sometimes to do with the way blockchain clients parse and unmarshal data that is fed to them on the network, right? So they process packets, they get packets, and they have to look at the content of the packet. And in, in that process, they, what we call, deserialize the packet, right? The packet comes encoded um, following a certain grammar, certain language, the blockchain node receives the package, decodes it, and then processes it, 
sort of propagates it up the, um, the business logic stack. But the very first layer is where we can potentially sometimes get the blockchain node to completely crash as it decodes a malicious package. It, it just does not know that malicious package does not adhere to that grammar that it's expecting. And in some cases, while well, it's trying to decode it following that grammar, and if you play it right, you can actually get them to just what we call OOM, get an out of memory uh, error on, on the actual uh, host, which, is, which will lead to the whole um, host restarting at least. So that's one avenue of bugs that we actively look for on the consensus layer. And then you have uh, obviously the cryptography side of things. We um, participants of these networks uh, usually, typically, use public key cryptography. So a public key, private key pair define an account. And uh, validators are responsible for signing uh, some messages, consensus messages, using those keys, using the hot key, the private key. Um, so we use uh, BLS signatures. It's a relatively new scheme uh, that was introduced uh, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, the Ethereum network is one of the first um, projects really uh, on earth making use of BLS signatures. And BLS signatures are really, really clever and uh, allow us to scale the number of participants in those networks um, really, really well, really, really well. So um, when it comes to cryptography, there's a lot of things that could go wrong, right? First of all, never roll your own crypto. There's heaps of different packages out there. Please just make sure you use a battle-tested, well-reviewed cryptography library, right? There's heaps of them. There's no, no excuses in 2023 to be rolling your own. Unless you're a cryptographer and you've been working for you know years on peer-reviewed research and you've come up with something very um, innovative and and you want to you know see see what it would actually look like in production, then of course. But if you're building off existing uh, components, well battle-tested blocks, then you know just just reuse what other brilliant people have done. Uh, and you'd be surprised in a lot of cases. Uh, some of our clients are like, no, 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 we'll do this better. We'll write it our, our own. Like, I don't, I don't want to use an external package. I don't want to have to deal with a C uh, code snippet that I then have to call into. I'll just write it myself. And it's extremely hard to get right. Cryptography uh, development is, is very difficult. Um, so in a lot of cases, we do find some of those bugs on the cryptographic layer. Um, some of the bugs that we found before the launch of the Ethereum proof of stake chain were actually really uh, really interesting we we could um essentially observe the identity of any user and and we could provide a key or a signature sorry that would always be deemed valid regardless of the data this is due to uh, the point at infinity when you deal with elliptic curves uh and you know if, if you passed to your verification function a point at infinity then you'll always validate it but at least that was the behavior of that particular library um so yeah cryptography can 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 be very very tricky to get right um so again strongly recommend not rolling your own um and this is again another area where we've been successful in finding critical vulnerabilities on behalf of our clients what's uh what's the success rate on the people that want to roll their own cryptography low low <laughs> oh yeah 
Oh, very low. Yeah. Funny enough. Um, uh, we do it. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> Manny did his own implementation. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been meaning to actually take a look at his implementation. I think some of our guys have dived into his BLS implementation. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think his challenge was to try to make it constant time, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Um, He's done some fun things. I'm a little bit of a new. We'll talk um, after this. <laughs> I um, I'm a little bit of new, but I kind of understand. I mean, I don't even roll my own joints. But what does roll <laughs> your own crypto mean? Uh, okay. So it's basically like roll your own crypto. You can think of it. As Sorry, roll your own develop. cryptography. I got yes. specific yes. there for the audience. Yes. yes. Roll your own cryptography. There Absolutely. It's like develop your own cryptography. Uh, you think that you can encrypt messages better than decades and decades of computer science research and uh, cryptography research <laughs> hubris uh, yeah i know right but some people think that they can and they're like no nah, it's just you know i just need to xor these messages and pad them a little bit and shot the whole thing and look at this you know you can't recover this can you Carry uh, one. So that, that's frustrating that's that's really frustrating it's like nah <laughs> we've got ciphers for a reason <laughs> so please use those uh curves that have been at least uh deemed safe by the community um yeah sorry venting um but yeah it's 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 either coming up with a new algorithm a new cipher that you think beats the rest i call that developing or rolling your own crypto or you're implementing an existing um, algorithm, Cypher, that's been proven to work, but you're implementing it yourself. And you're not using the reference implementation or the gazillion numbers of well-battle-tested libraries that have implemented this scheme before you. And you think that you can do it better than that. Guess what? Probably can't. Because <laughs> there's a lot of effort that has gone into securing those libraries. They've gotten third-party security assessments. They've gone through extensive rounds of fuzzing. In some cases, they've also been formally verified. And you just rock up and think that you can, <laughs> you can like just just no, do better than I, that. I it's, there. Yeah, exactly. no need to yeah, check yeah. it. Yeah, 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 exactly. It was me, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for clearing that up. Sure. Easy. Um, yeah. I mean, I can talk about consensus stuff for ages, right? But um, we may want to cover something else. I, I Just before we move on, perhaps, I, I quickly mentioned different implementations of the same specification. It is the case for the Ethereum network. It is the case for the Polkadot network, where you have, say, for Ethereum, a client written in Go, one in Rust, one in Java, one in Nim, one in JavaScript. So, you know, a whole heap of different flavors of the actual same spec. This is important, right? They're all building the same thing in different languages. What you uh, find interesting in, in those cases when you have that, um, that landscape of different clients is, is, is trying to do something that we call, well, is called differential fuzzing, right? If you have five pieces of software doing the same thing, concurrently right they're, they're connected to each other it's like a p2p mesh network uh, where they all meant to be doing the same thing if one of them diverges from the spec there's, if there's a bug in one of them well what happens is that that particular client or the validators running that client may actually fork off and build their own chain 
and have their own skewed vision of history, meaning that they won't actually be able to participate meaningfully in the consensus of Ethereum. Um, so obviously we want to find these bugs before they hit production, right? Because what we're talking about here, if they are to be exploited, is a proper chain split. And it's probably one of the worst things that can happen in a blockchain, right? It's like a, a contentious fork. We don't even know what's the canonical chain anymore. We've got too many validators on both sides. Social recovery, i.e. hard fork, is probably the only uh, solution we have left. Um, so, yeah, we try to find those particular state transitions that may result in a discrepancy, in a deviance on, on any client. So on Ethereum, we've got four or five, maybe six different clients. We fuzz them all and we do, as I said, differential fuzzing where we compare the output on all of those clients for every single input we provide and we make sure that the output is the same because it should be the same. Again, they're doing the exact same thing in different languages. And if they don't actually, if there's a difference in output, then it's potentially a critical bug. Um, and it's up to us to, you know, sort of trying to find where uh, this uh, this came from and why we actually have this discrepancy. Uh, and it's been great. We found about, I don't know, 40 bugs, some of them very critical bugs using these techniques on, on the Ethereum network. Um, it's hard. It's, it's, it's very, my job yeah. is easy. Finding bugs, like shipping software without bugs is much harder. It an interesting dovetail from that conversation is why go through the effort of writing multiple implementations, right? Mm. If you have to do all this extra work to make sure that different implementations are quote unquote speaking the same language, like mm. for every input, they all do have the exact same output and you have to do all this work to make sure that's the case. Why build multiple implementations? That's a great question. And we didn't make it easy on ourselves. And by we, I mean the Ethereum community. By prioritizing client diversity. Uh, the Bitcoin network, uh, for example, is at the polar opposite of that philosophy. We're like, no, 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 no. We want to only have one reference implementation so that there aren't any cases where you know, a potential network could fork. Um, for Ethereum, in Ethereum, we have historically um, been huge fans of client diversity. It actually saved us in the past Right, if you recall, 2019, 19 or 18? 19, I believe. Uh, bug on Go Ethereum, the largest um, Ethereum execution client. Uh, you know, bug uh, in, on the execution um, side of things. And the only reason why we had no interruption to the operation of the network was thanks to the second client, Parity. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. It's called um, Open Ethereum. That, I'm not, I'm not sure that exists anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but we used to have a Rust um, execution client called Parity. Um, so yeah, you know, Geth was down. Parity was up. No, absolutely no impact on the end user, which is great. So client diversity allows us to have a way uh, to fall back, right? If there's a bug affecting one implementation, well, you know, luckily, if we're lucky, that bug is not spread to the other implementations, which means that the rest of the network can then carry the load. Uh, so it's critical to the, going back to that A in the CIA triad, availability, client diversity is critical to ensuring availability in the context of blockchain networks. That's our opinion. That's 
I guess the Ethereum family's opinion, uh, but that can be debated, and you know some other networks aren't necessarily following the same uh, philosophy. I think I identified the, the trade-off nicely of like it's extra work to ensure that you have um, that all of the different implementations follow a specification, and I'm sure you understand fully that most people don't write specifications, so like you need a lot of court. There's a lot of coordination effort in that process, which is hard when you have competing businesses writing software. But at the same time, Absolutely. you're giving a lot of guarantees on that thing that you need, mm. which is availability. Absolutely. One thing that uh, I don't think uh, many people think about outside of the Ethereum community, like I'm talking about the lay people, are where nodes are actually hosted from. Uh, is there any, I guess, security aspects associated with everybody uh, trying to run a node at home versus you know using aws or you know digital ocean or something like that that's a great question um i think if i recall correctly and we can uh, try to dig up the numbers but there's been a, a, a study published not too long ago that aims at tracking where those validators are right like where they are geographically and what they're running on and you'll find that the the distribution is is very interesting, actually, in the sense that a lot of operators do use cloud services. And then within cloud services, there's definitely a dominant part of AWS hosting. AWS is more expensive. It's probably the, the sort of prime cloud provider uh, in that list. Uh, but they're very easy to use, I guess, right? Like people doing DevOps or who have... You know, played with the cloud before have probably interacted with AWS. So that explains why they have such a big share of the network. Uh, and then you've got all the exchanges, the Kraken, the Binance, the Coinbases. These folks try to be fairly secretive about their DevOps operations. Um, so we, we obviously have advanced uh, working relationships with some of them so we know what, what they're running. A lot of them run stuff in the cloud. Some of them have their own data centers as well. Um, and finally, I like that you mentioned the homestakers. Homestakers are great. They've always been a priority when it came to designing this thing. You know, we designed it with the homestakers in mind. We want people to be able to run this stuff from home. Um, and thanks to initiatives like Rocket Pool, uh, that allows you to have liquid staking and say, you know, I'm interested in staking. I only have 16 Ether. I don't have 32. Well, I can chuck 16 Ether and collect 16 Ether from the community. And with these 32 Ether, I'm going to now run a validator and I will be you know, sharing the actual uh, yield or rewards with the people that pulled those 16 ETH together. Uh, this has actually resulted in a whole bunch of people running Rocket Pool from home. Which is great. Like if the if you try to optimize decentralization, you obviously want a node everywhere, right? You don't want all your nodes to be in America. You don't want all your nodes to be in Europe. You really want that network to hopefully have um, have sorry uh, have a, like a presence geographically everywhere. You want a presence in as many different data centers as possible, as many different cloud providers as possible. I think we're doing an okay job. Uh, let me. Let me just say this. I think we're doing a, a decent job. Uh, obviously, decentralizing more is, is definitely beneficial. Uh, a lot of concerns uh, were floating around with, with Lido. 
um, Lido being a liquid staking protocol, but effectively only governed by a selected set of entities. So you've, you've got about 30, 40 organizations that can act as validators for Lido, whereas Rocket Pool is completely open, permissionless. Anyone can come in and run a Rocket Pool node. Um, so we've seen Rocket Pool eat up a lot of Lido's lunch over the past few weeks. Um, and that's probably, you know, depends who you ask, but it's probably a good thing for decentralization, right? Because the more Rocket Pool nodes um, are spun up, um, the more it's probably home stakers, most likely. Whereas if you spin up more Lido validators, well, these are managed by professionals. I must say that Sigma Prime is a node operator on both, on Lido and Rocket Pool. Kind of like to switch gears a little bit. Um, we've been talking about security as it applies to a layer underneath smart contracts and what it means to like think about security for consensus and how to what type of bugs are appropriate for breaking the nodes that run these things uh but there's a there's this concept in traditional security that i that i've always enjoyed and that is the a pyramid of pain um if you're not familiar with that it's this pyramid of uh different types of uh, indicators of compromise or IOCs and how easy or difficult they are to uh, mitigate, right? And so if you look at traditional security at the base layer, you have things called hash values, right? They're basically, you can, you can find them easily, but by removing a specific hash value as an indicator of compromise, the, the attacker doesn't have to do much to get past that. He just changes a byte in the software. You can't see it anymore. He can just keep going, right? And you go up the pane, as you go up the pyramid of pain, it changes. And at the very top, you're basically, uh, it's TTPs. So in order to uh, mitigate these, if you're, if you're successful in mitigating these types of things, then you're forcing the attacker to change their behavior. And they're less likely to do that. Therefore, your, your, your overall security, security posture and software or organization is much better. And what I've been interested in in the security industry is the differences in traditional security and blockchain security as it pertains to getting the user to change their behavior. And what are the different types of indicators of compromise that are different in this industry than traditional security? As an example, um, phishing is incredibly more detrimental in the blockchain industry than it is in, in the traditional industry. While it's still detrimental, it's worse here because if you lose your seed phrase, you lose everything. There's no way of getting it back. Like, can you talk about that as a concept? What's the difference between traditional security and Web3 security as it, as it pertains to like the attack surface or what people go after and how, yeah. um, it, how like, yeah, that general differentiation. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Um, in my view, corporate security or traditional legacy security, if you will, um, has the ability to layer a lot of defenses, right? And this is the approach, really, when you talk to CISOs and like tech giants, this is what they're doing. They, you know, there's no such thing as a secure organization. It's just a, a very hard to hack organization. So, and they understand this and they're layering perimeter defenses 
layer, layered with like you know AVs uh, endpoint protection deployed on all workstations, plus you know lots of red teaming, lots of security testing, etc. Um, they're making their attack surface as little as possible, right? So having some services that can potentially be considered sensitive, well, we'll just hide them behind a VPN, right? If just if our employees are the only people needing to connect to this sensitive thing, hide it behind VPN, then you're sweet, right? Then you, you first need to compromise uh, an employee or compromise their workstation to be able to access that network. Not saying that can't be done, obviously it can, but again, just layering those layers of defense, just adding them on top of each other. Um, we can do that relatively easily in the corporate world, right? Something is too critical, damn, just put it inside DMZ, you know, out of the internet, Something is um, is potentially in terms of confidentiality, right? Like if going back to the C of the CIA triad, if something is very critical and we don't want people to have access to it, just put it behind off, right? Just use authentication, use a, an authentication provider, or for example, tie it back to our Active Directory if we have one, and you know, within probably like a few hours, that piece of information is now protected. Right against illegal access. We can't really do so much of that in our space, can we? Uh, so when you deploy a smart contract, by definition, the attack surface that is available to you as the builder, as the deployer, is the exact same that's available to anyone. I think North Koreans, think like bad actors, they all play with the exact same rules. They all play with the exact same attack surface. So unfortunately, we, um, we, we, we won't have that luxury of adding perimeter defenses <laughs> to help us sleep at night. Um, we, we, we can't really do that. Um, so there's a big difference there. Another thing is, I think, monitoring. Monitoring is quite interesting. I think a lot of people have realized over the past few months that there's a strong need of being able to monitor my protocol closely, right? Uh, so people have thrown around a couple of interesting initiatives to be able to standardize how we're doing monitoring. Um, so this is a very immature area of our industry, in my opinion, whereas the monitoring business in traditional security, holy cow. Uh, it's the it's like, knees. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's been, been around for over a decade probably now, definitely over a decade. And it's matured to a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, so yeah. Um, a lot of work that we kind of need to do on the blue team side of things in the crypto world to match whatever we have already in the traditional space. Um, these are just my views. Well, they're welcome to disagree with them, Corey. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> if you listen to anything I've ever had to say, monitoring has always been the main thing I, I worry about. Um, like, there's this concept, like we said earlier, the majority of the people focused on smart contracts. They develop smart contracts. They try to understand secure software development life cycles. They, they spend a lot of money getting audits, like mm -hmm. for a while, exorbitant amounts of money getting audits and waiting in mm -hmm. line. And then they deploy these things, then they walk away and pretend they're safe. Mm -hmm. And then they don't ever watch them. Um, and the tools we have associated with doing both of those activities are very asymmetric, mm -hmm. meaning that the people who like all the tools we have for checking that a specific smart contract does what it's supposed to do is much larger than the tools we have for checking that it is operating appropriately on the blockchain now, right? Or like showing up when it does something that we don't want it to, 
um, or money moves in a specific way that it's that it's leading towards some some risky risky scenario and like yeah i I can't i I I, i'll i'll sit on that soapbox all day long yeah i think this is a very interesting area of research i'm not sure if you would agree with me uh that i haven't really seen explored too much lately is monitoring based on mempool activity so mm-hmm. I probably want to know about a, a potential um, exploitation before it happens, right? Well, I, I want to know about it after it happens, of course. But uh, ideally, I want to know as it happens, right? So if we are able to build a set of uh, monitoring tools that effectively monitor the mempool and not the on-chain transactions, this might allow us to potentially, hopefully, avoid some of those hacks, Right. Uh, and you can think of like gas gas price wars as well, right? Like if 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 there's a call being done to this governance contract that changes this particular parameter to a, a ridiculous value, act on it directly, bump the gas price, front run that transaction, and secure your protocol. So there's there's I think a lot of things that can be done. Um, but by the way, these we've been talking about this with my co-founder. There's heaps of ways that you can abuse that, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to yeah. be extremely careful how you build uh, such uh, such an infrastructure. Uh, but I, I think it's definitely worth exploring, uh, and it could have potentially saved a few billion dollars uh, over the past year. To add on the question that I asked you in the first place, these differences, I'd like to mention that uh, one of the hallmarks of blockchain networks is relinquishing control. And giving it over to users, yeah. and that usually means that uh, we also give them the responsibility of managing the risk associated with that control. And so, since we no longer have it, we have to educate or make appropriate defaults that help them navigate that situation or understand how to navigate it themselves whenever it comes up. And that's that's a I think a very differentiated part of security in crypto is that traditional security is don't worry about it we'll take care of it we we've we've kept you from mm. being able to shoot yourself in the foot you can't do anything and if you can we'll fix it for you because we have that control and so you have to trust them whereas that's almost anathema to most blockchain yeah. principles is we literally can't do it so if you do it you're shit out of luck but we also have lacked considerably in the education process of helping people understand how to make the right decision at the right time and yeah. uh, set themselves up such that they don't make bad decisions. We're learning. We're learning. We're paying very expensive school fees, but we're learning. Um, uh, it's it's very interesting to see the uh, amount of money that flew out of the centralized exchanges following what happened with FTX. It is mm-hmm. like people are like, ah, oh, it's never going to happen to me. Oh, no very reputable uh, exchange you know I, i've seen this guy's face everywhere um you know it's nothing nothing bad's gonna happen so this was a good example in my in my view like the fact that this top exchange came down overnight with creditors you know begging to get the money back that's like oh okay we've they got all these nerves yeah <laughs> yeah exactly we had all these nerves telling us about self-custody for years and we never really listened to them it's not convenient is it well, now we understand why they were raving about this thing for years now. Um, and I, I, I certainly see it among my close friend circle, people that are outside of this space that are somewhat interested in crypto or kind of want to hold some crypto. I've heard about what happened at FTS and they're like, Mehdi, what, what should I do? Like, I'm ready. Like, you've been telling me to move my money off exchanges. 
haven't listened to you for years, but um, I'm listening now. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see. School fees, expensive school fees that I wish we didn't have to pay, that I wish the community users didn't have to pay. But unfortunately, in some cases, that's the only way to learn. Did you say school fees? Yeah, it's a, probably it might be an Australian saying. So it's like, you know, you, you pay the price to learn a life lesson. Oh, call that street lessons. You get school, son. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm. I have a lot of questions. Please. I'm trying to find the right ones. I'll start it easy. How do you, like, how do you remain so pure? Like, if your job is like, I'm finding vulnerabilities, <laughs> how do you not, like, oh, man, I could just grab some... Yeah. Some stacks well, real quick and take a good vacation. <laughs> Nobody would know. I'll just, you know, oh, how, do you give, how do you remain so cool? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great question. I've, I've been doing this stuff for a while, right? Like I've been a uh, white hat hacker for over 11 years now. And trust me, in my pre-blockchain times, the number of occasions where I was like, let's just, Let's just go, guys. <laughs> so, like testing banks, you know, you take like test like big four banks here in Australia. You find a way to pop the whole bank, basically, right? Like I'm like a one liner away from transferring an absurd Office amount of money. It. Just take a yeah. small percentage of every transaction. You'll never know. <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> just like sitting there with my manager. Uh, this was I don't know, seven years ago, and we were like, "Cool, <laughs> what are life choices?" This is where you like look at each other. And, like we're all wearing suits, and where I was working for a big four consulting firm doing pen testing, and like you have to be presentable. Um, and and yeah, we're like, you know, we could we could end this, you know, right now. <laughs> so uh, we've like that temptation I've had to sort of live with and deal with for over a decade now. So I'm fine, um, but yeah, it is it is a real it is a real challenge, I guess, for maybe people that come from darker hats <laughs> backgrounds. Uh, some people come from the black hat industry, and I've, and I've interacted with some. It's very interesting. So I think it comes down to how we incentivize people to report things. Well, obviously, I get paid. Sigma Prime gets paid to review the security posture of our clients' work. Can you imagine if we were to not disclose some of the vulnerabilities we find and just, you know, either exploit them in the wild or mm -hmm. um, report them through bug bounties. I mean, my, yeah, this company wouldn't last a week, I don't think, <laughs> if we started doing this. Um, so obviously the, the problem or the, the challenge is when you try and attract all these white hat hackers, all these gray hats, or these just black hats, and they're like, Look, I've got crazy rewards. Just do the right thing. Please do the right thing. Don't pop this live on mainnet. Here are a set of steps that you can follow to responsibly disclose whatever you found. And guess what? If we deem that it is a critical vulnerability, I've heard protocol give 10% of their TDL. Cap that one, like, I don't know, something not too crazy, like 20 mil or 10 mil, but Jeez. they commit to giving 10% of their TDL. So if you find something juicy on a DeFi protocol and you can get paid a couple of million dollars with you know, clean money, in some cases tax-free money, as opposed to having this tainted- And um, reputation. Stack, obviously, yeah, yeah. Oh, not even talking about reputation. So black hats usually 
don't care too much about repetition because they like rotate through different handles and haven't capitalized anyway but you're absolutely right um so yeah the alternative is to like it's okay i got two mil clean in my bank account or i pop the protocol and i get 20 30 but every single exchange on earth every single dex has now my you know, is now like tracking these funds. And it'll be extremely difficult for me to actually be able to swap them to any sort of uh, cash or value. Um, so, and I think things like Immunify are certainly heading towards that direction or at least pointing people towards responsibly disclosing things as opposed to exploiting them in the wild. And now people are like, yeah, okay, cool. Two mil is actually pretty good, right? Like, right someone reported a bug on uh, on a bridge and got six mil out of it. The bridge had eight billion dollars worth of value. <laughs> so, like, mm, six mil is decent, right? Because if you were to drain all those tokens, well, pro first of all, you're probably going to dump them on any secondary market, which will affect the valuation of what of your loot, effectively. It's not going to be eight billion anymore. It's probably going to be like you know, four, three, two, whatever. Um, and more importantly, you'll find you find it extremely difficult to actually find liquidity to exchange those tainted coins. So, and in the yeah. event that you do, depending on the jurisdiction you live in, you're going to get come after. So, like, oh yeah, okay. yeah you're never going to escape gone. the fact that like you have to use this money in real day life, and there's a lot of police that would love to yeah. catch you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Was that, that wormhole hacker deposited mm -hmm. to the beacon chain? Didn't they? Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, I've got all this stolen ether. Hmm, what could I do with it? Let's stake it. <laughs> the the consensus governance uh, framework can't censor you, so just check it there. Anyway, interesting. Mm, I have too many questions, so I'm, I'm going to pass the rock to you, Jess. <laughs> I actually don't have a question right now. Just enjoying listening. I'm gonna take the rock back. Oh, I, I could I could go forever. So like D, have at it. Um, there was this interesting concept I was bringing up shortly before you joined before the interview, and that's like where security overlaps safety. Uh, mm. I um, and what I mean by that is uh, I'm not I'm nowhere near as much in the weeds as everyone here in the call. I'm, I'm more of a GPP. It's a phrase that Corey is writing his paper on uh, called general purpose person. I'm, I'm a tier three GPP though. I've been around for, I think, yeah, 10 years. So I know the things, you know, hardware wallets got a few. Um, but as a tier three GPP, all the, the three layers below me, zero through two, uh, they all come to me for advice. You know, like, hey, should I use this exchange? Hey, you know, should I buy this alien robot NFT? Hey, should I? And I'm like, as a tier three, I'm like, look, just get out of my, go, get out of my face. But GPPs need that feeling of safety. And right mm -hmm. now, crypto is a little far from that. I have, you know, tier ones coming to me every day. Hey, you know, I went to this website and MetaMask and now my stuff's gone. And I'm like, yeah, why would you do that? That's something that you shouldn't do. But they just don't know. Right. So now they're like, yeah. screw crypto. Screw all of it. Screw you, mm -hmm. too, for getting me involved. In this. <laughs> right. And yeah. um, how does security how can security start to pay just a little bit more attention to what makes users feel safe? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's, you've certainly pinpointed the a, a massive, massive challenge that the industry is facing. Um, 
Yeah, there's uh, there's no magic answer. I don't think um, the the key, in my view, is education, right? Um, and you might scream at me, but also regulation. Hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. Oh my <laughs> man! See, we can get drinks. Hear Hold me. up. Yeah. We can't. Yeah, we got you down on download, but I like that you said that. But keep going. Um, so I start with education. Um, we need to do a better job at explaining what MetaMask does. What like either so there's two two ways to go about this. Abstract the danger and complexity away from your users. That kind of defeats the purpose of what we're trying to achieve here. Um, and that's like going back to what Corey was saying. This is what traditional businesses, you know, Web two world businesses have been offering their their users. Right? It's like leave that to us. We got you covered. Do not bother with these concepts. We're here for you. Moving away from this, now we kind of have to make sure that these people understand what they're dealing with in terms of you know, custody, private keys. What, what, what does that all mean? Right? Like if you're like talking back to your point D, like your tier one, tier two friends, they, first of all, they've never heard about these concepts. And most importantly, they don't give a fuck about these things. Nope. Right? Like what they care about is not getting popped, right? Well, they also care about, you know, their silly investments and JPEG going through the moon, but you know, that's a, that's a, a different, different conversation. Um, so we need to be able to explain these things. And, and the reality is we, we're not even trying, right? We're like bombarding them with like technical jargon and expecting them to figure their way out of it. Like that doesn't work. That's not how we should be doing these things. Um, enter my second point, regulation. <laughs> so hear me out. I was called on to uh, help out the treasury department here in Australia. He's coming up with a set of, not policies, but policy guidelines, right? Like, hey, policymakers, you may have to decide about these new crypto networks and you've got no idea what they are, do you? So here, read this paper that is meant to explain to you relatively in detail what to expect, what are these networks, how they operate, etc. Um, so following what has happened with FTX and even, even before that, Australian authorities were like, we, we, we need a framework. We need, we need like something here to tell people what to do, tell businesses what to do, what not to do. And so I, I rocked up. Great, great people. Clever cookies, great questions couple of hours back and forth questions um and at the very end the head of that team was like what's what's your view on regulation I'm like, oh. <laughs> i don't know um but the the essence of what i said was that education should be the priority of of the regulatory framework so like you can't force uniswap to do something you can't force Aave to you know comply with like this this way of thinking is so 2018 like where you'd like speak to all these government officials, they're like, no, 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 no. Like these lending platforms, they should do this, 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 and that. Or like these exchanges, you know, well, they're decentralized exchanges, doesn't matter. They're exchanges, they need to comply with this, 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 and that. They've really quickly, I think, understood that this is actually not doable, right? Like you can't, like Ave, who's gonna, like, no. <laughs> How about no? Um, so what we should be focusing on in terms of regulation is education. So hear me out. One of the suggestions I had was establishing a set of guidelines, right? And inviting all these protocols being built by Anon people sometimes to follow these guidelines. Have you, do you have documentation? 
You know, how do you have tests? Have you received a an external security review? Uh, do you have a bug bounty program? Like it's basic stuff, right? Like Corey and I go through this stuff like multiple times a day. Super basic stuff. But at least you can then go to your citizens and be like, hey, we care about you. We think that you shouldn't be interacting with any website, with any platform that doesn't prove to you that they've gone through this set of guidelines, right? And then we can probably you know, take this one step further and have some sort of registry that's vetted by the community or the regulators on websites or protocols that are following these guidelines. So it gets, it gets to... Uh, tricky territory very quickly, like who is actually issuing these certifications? Do we need a certification process? Or should we just make it like um, uh, optional to, for people to maybe uh, try to seek that uh, accreditation from the, the, the government agency, right? Like I'm, I'm Ave, I'm like, I'm legit. I've been spending billions of dollars on security. I want Australian people to know that, you know, I'm safe to interact with. And then I'll go and knock on the treasury store and be like, hey, I represent Ave. We can prove to you that these things are met. Can we get like some sort of tick from the government? Or like, can we end up on this registry of safe protocols? Uh, this is what regulation, in my opinion, should be focusing on. Education and incentivization for protocols to comply with a certain set of guidelines. And again, those guidelines, super basic. Um, but I do believe that if they're followed, you know, you're dramatically reducing your risk of, uh, of exposure and exploitation. I'd like to follow up with an example of that that I think people can, can identify with who's listening. And that is the little lockbox um, on your browser when you're browsing that. the internet. Yep. That, that UI and the warnings that you receive when that thing isn't present is an example of what it means to follow a specific type of like general guideline or regulation, right? We, we, we say like, it is safe to have TLS as a part of your, like yeah. your website offering. If you don't have these certificates to allow us to establish secure connections to your website, then we're going to deem you unsafe and we're going to warn the user and put red boxes and unlocks. Right. And yeah. so if someone wants to, make it easy for people to navigate their website, they do these things. And it's defining those types of things and the tools that alert users when people aren't doing it that get us to a point of people making good decisions. And so like, I think that's a, a, a reasonable, normal example of uh, what regulation and standardization looks like. And also then education like and focusing on education for that type of thing it's like oh this is unsafe so don't do it and if you want to you're more than welcome to but it's at your own risk yeah you're on your own yeah agreed so uh that's a great way to wrap up yeah how do we like as always we like to we like to ask the the, the question like uh is there something you wished we asked that uh we didn't oh how I was doing? I'm joking. No, um, no, I don't think so. Think, uh, <laughs> How are you doing, Medi? I'm well. <laughs> Jesse nails doing it every time. Well, thank you. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, no, it was great. Uh, great chatting to you guys. I don't think there was anything that I would want to specifically, explicitly cover. 
um, I think it was interesting. Maybe you have other questions. I've got a bit of time, but otherwise, I can wrap it up. My 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 effort was to not insert my opinions in most of these things. You've done well. You've done really well. <laughs>